The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, welcome. My name is uh, Doug Fern, one of the pastors here on staff at Parkview, and it's my joy and privilege to be able to share um, with you this morning from God's Word. Uh, that video, every time I watch it, is deeply convicting uh, to me. The point is very simple. If you believe what the Bible teaches on eternity, if you believe what the Bible teaches on Jesus, then the natural response is to tell other people. How much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them? Uh, this morning, we will feel this sense of urgency where eternity is concerned. If you're new with us, uh, or if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been in a series on eternity that is focused on the reality of eternity, um, what heaven looks like, and who will be going there, what hell looks like, and who might be going there. Uh, we've been focusing on this reality through the Bible. The purpose of this series, and my job this morning, I get the joy of being able to kind of close it up a little bit. The purpose of this series and the purpose of our, our, our taking a, a specific focus and look at the reality of eternity is not that we would leave here with just more information. Um, not that we would just leave here and be able to talk um, with friends about what heaven might look like or hell might look like and maybe be able to argue and discuss and, and find different interpretations. That's not the intent uh, that we have for this series. Rather, the intent is that the reality of eternity would have a drastic impact in how we live our life right now. The reality of a heaven and a hell would drastically impact every choice that you make um, in this life. So to do that this morning, um, to kind of, again, bring the series to a close, I would invite you to open your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, the text will be on the screen to 2 Thessalonians. We will be in chapter 1. Um, I will read starting in verse 5, and we'll go through verse 12. 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are written by Paul to the church at Thessalonica. A common theme while Paul was writing these letters was eternity. He, when he was writing to the church at Thessalonica, he had eternity in his viewfinder. Another common theme was Christ's coming, which is the particular focus of this passage, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, in verse 5, we read this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Currently, the church of Thessalonica, there is affliction, there is persecution because of their faith. They're suffering for Jesus. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our Lord of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father God, just thank you for the opportunity to examine your word now. Lord, thank you for the hope that this passage should bring to the life 
of a believer. Lord, and I pray as we examine what responsibility we have in light of these truths, Lord, I pray that you would convict us with nothing but your truth this morning. Lord, I pray it would be clear. I pray your spirit would be here, would open our ears, our hearts. Lord, and I pray that you would be at work among us. Lord, we love you. We need you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, D.L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists in the 19th century. He was a man who had a zeal for Jesus and for those who did not know Jesus. D.L. Moody was a passionate, famous evangelist. He would share Jesus wherever he would go. He would share Jesus to crowds in the midst of revivals. D.L. Moody was about sharing Jesus. It is said that one time somebody approached him with a question. They asked D.L. Moody, if you knew the Lord was returning tonight... How would you spend the rest of your day? Moody's response was interesting. He said, I wouldn't do anything different from what I do every day. Remember, he's an evangelist. His job, what he, his life's work is sharing Jesus with others. And he understands that because of Christ's imminent coming, he has a sense of urgency to share Jesus' message with other people. My hope this morning is that as we look at this word, that each of us would be able to examine our life and to ask ourselves, can we respond to that question just like D.L. Moody did? My hope is that we would be able to. And then if that we aren't able to, that we would do what needs to be done so that we can. Again, a major, major focus in this passage and throughout this book is Christ's second coming. This morning we will uh, take these passages and we'll, this passage, and we will look at his second coming, and I believe we will see three, my hope is that we'll see three things very clearly. The first thing we will examine is the reality of Jesus' return. The reality of Jesus' return. Next thing we'll look at is the reason for his return. Why is Jesus coming again? And lastly, where we'll spend most of our time this morning is, in light of these truths, how are we to act? What's our responsibility in light of his second coming? So first, the reality of Jesus' return. I have three basic observations that we see here in the text about what Jesus will look like when he comes back, how his return ultimately will look. We see this in verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Three basic observations. He's coming from heaven, he's coming with angels, and he's coming in fire. First, he's coming from heaven. The idea that Jesus Christ will return to earth and will do so from heaven speaks to the authority upon which Jesus will come. Jesus' authority. If you were to look in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we learn that shortly after Jesus was crucified and was resurrected from the grave, he spent time with his disciples. He spent time with his believers. And he taught them and he commissioned them to take this message, take this truth, and go and tell the nations about me and what I've done. Then in verse 9 we read, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and in a cloud took him out of their sight. He was lifted up, and he ascended into heaven. In Hebrews 8.1 we learn, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We learn that Jesus ascended to heaven after the resurrection, and there to this day, presently, he remains at the right hand of God. His function there is to intercede for us. So in this passage, 
It's a reminder as we look in 2 Thessalonians that there's a promise that Jesus will fulfill. He will be faithful to his word. That promise we see again in Acts chapter 1. And while these men are there gazing, while they're staring into heaven, this miracle of Jesus ascending up on a cloud, somebody appears before them and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return. He was ascended, he remains, and he's coming back to reality. The way he comes back, though, is going to be very different than the way he first came to earth. The Bible tells us that when Jesus first came to earth, remember he was born to a a lowly virgin teenager, Okay? His presence, the fact that he was God here on earth, Emmanuel, was veiled to the common man. It had to be, it wasn't but the, the, the work of God to prick somebody's heart for them, to, their eyes to open up and see who Jesus was. Even the men who spent the most time with Jesus didn't fully understand upon whose authority he spoke. Their, their, the reality was when Jesus was first walked on this earth, his presence was veiled to man. Okay, it would be possible to be walking down the street that Jesus was walking down to bump into the creator of the universe and not know who he is. When he first came, that would have been a possibility. Not when he comes again. Not when he comes again. See, when Jesus returns, there will be no manger. There will be no stable When Jesus returns, there will be no lowly upbringing, no swinging of a hammer to make a living. When Jesus returns, there'll be no traveling of dirty roads or riding on donkeys. When Jesus returns, there will be no false accusations, no entrapment. When Jesus returns, there will be no no crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him. When Jesus returns, there will be no tree for him to hang on. There will be no spear stuck in his side. When Jesus returns... The crown on his head will look very, very different when Jesus comes back. His presence will be made known to everyone. There will be no mistaking who Jesus is and and whose authority he comes. Everyone will know. Everyone will know. The second thing we learn about his return is that he will do so with angels. The way it is written in the original language, it says, the angels of the power of him. So power describes him, not necessarily the angels. With some of our translations, it can be easy to miss that. He comes in the power of him with angels. The idea that he is coming is, uh, shows us that when Jesus returns, he will do so with power. He will do so in authority and with power. He will do so with power. Uh, a great place to see this in the Old Testament is in Psalm 68, where it says, Psalm 68, verse 17, it says, The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. When God moves throughout the Old Testament, he does so in the company of angels. He does not move alone. And when Jesus returns in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks about it himself, listen to what he says in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. When Jesus comes back, he will come back with power, multitudes of angels. The ancient language 10,000 was the highest that they would count. And so they would say 10,000 on 10,000 on 10,000 to describe how many angels Jesus would come with. The eye would not be able to count. He will do so with power. 
The next thing we learn from the text about Jesus' return is that he will do so in flaming fire. He will come in flaming fire. This idea of fire and flame and throughout the Bible is a, is a biblical symbol of the holy, consuming nature of God's presence. In the Old Testament, the reference to fire describing God generally intended to highlight either his divine presence or his judgment. In Isaiah 66, 15, this is what we read. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. The imagery of a flaming fire is used to capture in a powerful manner the frightening judgment that is coming for those who stand in opposition to Jesus when he returns. Judgment comes. When Jesus returns to this earth, he does so with judgment. That's the point of him coming in fire. So the reality of his coming, he will do so from heaven. He will do so with angels. And when he comes, he will do so in fire. The authority, the power, and the judgment of his return. The next thing that we learn in this text as we move on is the reason. What is the purpose for Jesus' return? We see the purpose is very simple. His purpose for coming back to earth is to judge. He will come back and be a judge. Now, there's two sides to his judgment. There's two sides to God's judgment. The first side is what we, uh, we see in the text. We come across it in verse 8. It says, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. So right away, we find out who falls under this negative side of God's judgment. God's negative judgment, who does it pertain to? Who receives this? And it very clearly says, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel, who do not know, those who reject Jesus, unbelievers is who this judgment will fall on. His negative judgment will belong to those who reject Jesus. How will they respond to his coming? When unbelievers, those who did not follow him in this life, when they see Jesus coming in heaven, accompanied by angels with authority and power, how will they respond? If you were to read Isaiah 2, verse 10 through 11, um, we read a very, to me it's a very um, scary text. It says that the way that they will respond is that they will enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Those who do not know Jesus, those who reject Jesus, when he comes, they will hide their face. They will resort to the cliffs and the caves. They will be terrified. And what will their judgment be? It says here in the passage that their, their judgment, it describes it as eternal punishment and that they will be away from the presence of the Lord away from the presence of the Lord. They will be completely cut off, shut out, kept away from God and his goodness. It's nearly impossible for us to understand what this will look like. Um, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, we see this eternal punishment is described in a variety of ways. Unquenchable fire in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew 13, it calls it a fiery furnace. Eternal fire, Matthew 18. Second Peter talks about it being a blackest darkness. In Jude 7, the punishment of eternal fire. And in Revelation 21, 8, a fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
That's what their judgment will be. Essentially, for those who do not know God, who do not obey Jesus, they will suffer the eternal escalation of pain and torment. That's what their judgment will be. Now, for many of us in our culture, this side of Jesus is not a fun side. Um, For many of us in our culture, in our community, talking about Jesus in this way is not very popular. Um, A lot of us are willing, and myself included, are willing to, to really see Jesus and embrace the way he loved people throughout the New Testament, to see him as he, as he called children to come sit on his lap, as he healed the sick, as he spent time with the sinners, and he embraced the poor. We're all too willing to see that Jesus that's represented in the Bible and not see this Jesus in the Bible. But it's very clear, passage after passage, that when he comes, he will come as an avenger, as a warrior. In Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16, it talks about how his eyes are like flames of fire. He will be wearing a robe dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. It's not popular to talk about Jesus in those terms, but it is truthful. The second side that we see here to God's judgment has a much more positive side to his judgment. The question is, who will fall under this judgment? As we read the previous judgment, most of us would not readily sign up for that. So what do you have to do to be on the other side of his judgment? It says in the verse 10, it calls, Paul's writing to Thessalonica, and he calls them saints. In verses 3 and 4, it talks, Paul describes them as their faith is growing abundantly and their love for one another is increasing. These are believers. The ones who fall under this positive side are those who, who embrace God, who know God, and who obey God. Church of Thessalonica, they were faithful in loving one another, faithful in growing in their relationship with Jesus. How will they respond to his coming? Remember, those who do not know him, who reject Jesus, when when Jesus comes back, they will hide their faces. They will hide in the mountains, in the cliffs. Verse 10 tells us that when Jesus comes, those who do know him, they will marvel at him. The idea of marveling at Jesus as he comes down isn't that they will be standing there in amazement or in awe, just like, wow, I cannot believe this is happening right now. That's not the idea of marvel. The idea of marvel is that they will fall on their face. They will ascribe glory and honor, and they will worship Jesus. When his full presence is made known, and no one can deny it, he will be worshipped. He will be worshipped. The worship that he is justly due will finally take place. What will their judgment be? In verse 7, we read a synopsis of it, is that it will be to grant relief to those who believe him. I think this is a good word for us this morning. It was a good word in the time of the Thessalonians. Remember, they were first facing intense persecution and affliction because of their faith. The reality is that the life of a believer is not an easy life, nor should it be. The life of a believer will by definition cause opposition. Not just that, but just living on this earth in general involves struggle, involves sickness, pain, grief, loss. When Jesus returns, the judgment for the believer will be rest and relief. Release. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus invites us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invites us 
into the rest of the Father. He invites us into it. And when Christ returns, our judgment will be rest, will be relief from this present age. You see, these two sides of God's judgment forces us to make a, an obvious assumption. Our eternal destiny is dependent on how we respond to Jesus. What judgment will look like for you in eternity depends on how you respond to Jesus today. That's the reality. Our eternal destiny depends on our response to Jesus. Last thing we see in this text is in light of Christ's coming, in light of the eternal reality that the Bible talks about over and over and over again, we learn what our responsibility is when he comes back because he's coming back. What is our responsibility? How should we now live based on the information that we have, based on the hope we have in this book? How should we now live? I think as we think about the series as a whole, this is essentially what our intent is to establish. Our intent, like I said before, is not that we would leave here with information, not that we would leave here with a real thorough understanding of exactly what heaven will look like or exactly what eternal torment will look like. Our intent, and Paul's intent likewise, is that the reality of judgment, the reality of eternity would move us as believers, he's talking to believers here, out of our seats. That the reality of Christ's coming would move us out of our recliners, if you are so blessed to have one. And if this is true, if our eternal destiny is dependent on how we respond to Jesus, then I would argue there is nothing more important than this in our lives and in the lives of those around us. There is no truth in the Bible that should impact our life in a greater way than this truth. This truth, I would argue, should determine how we watch TV. This truth should determine how we play video games. This truth should determine how we uh, raise our children. This truth should determine how we go to work, how we drive through McDonald's. How we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with our spouses, our friends. If this is true, there is, I can think of no truth in the Bible that has a greater significance in how you live your life every single day than this truth. Christ is coming. Judgment is coming. It is appointed that man should die once and after that comes judgment. I can think of nothing that should allow us to live with a greater sense of urgency than the reality of eternity. I love the way that Penn said it. How much do you really have to, if this is true, how much do you really have to hate somebody not to tell them this? Yeah, cuts. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, wrote, people who believe that Jesus is already Lord and that he will appear again as judge of the world are called and equipped to think and act quite differently in the world from those who don't. If you today are here this morning, you're a part of the church, you follow Jesus, you believe this word, you claim him as king of your life, this has a significant impact on the way you should live right now. Uh, one of uh, the couple years ago, I watched a message. It was delivered by Francis Chan, and he had a, the message was centered on prayer. He had a fantastic illustration. Um, 
Basically, it was just this, that, you know, if, if, let's just imagine I were to tell one of my children, I have four children, I were to tell one of them, you know, I need you to go clean your room right now, okay? Can you go clean your room for daddy? Let's say I asked them to do that. So some scary words for some of my kids. Go clean your room. What would I expect? Jeremy, let's just say Dominic is there playing video game. You asked him to go clean his room. Okay, dad, goes. Now imagine he comes back. What would you expect him to say he did? Clean his room, okay? You imagine that. You would expect him to have a clean room. This could preach for my family right now, I think, okay? I feel tempted to just stay here, but I won't. Now imagine, imagine the child comes back and says, you know, Dad, I, uh, you asked me to clean my room. Thank you for that. And I um, really just felt so encouraged and motivated. I decided to go to my room and I got uh, my notebook and a pen called up a couple of my friends. We talked a lot about, okay, if we, if we cleaned our room, what would it look like? We took notes. We did a, a word study. We parsed that sentence apart. We figured out exactly what you meant when you told me to clean my room. Now, look at the notes, Dad. Look at the notes. Your response, there would probably be fire in your eyes, okay? What do you mean? I just wanted a clean room, okay? I think much of that can be applied to the way Jesus talks to us and the way we respond to him, often as believers. So often he tells us truths. He gives us commands. He tells us how to live our life. And our response, our natural response as a church, and this is for me as well as anybody else here, can often be, okay, what does he mean by that? Let's, let's really figure this thing out. Let's study it. Let's dwell on it. Do it. That's what he wants. Judgment is coming. You have an eternal destiny in store for you. Get out of your seat. Tell others. Tell others. I recently uh, took my first class at seminary, um, uh, attending Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky. And an awesome opportunity. First class I signed, for, I signed up for, it's just one of those deals where I have to go like maybe a week or do some online courses. The first class I signed up for, which was required for my um, department, was that I uh, take a course on personal evangelism. When I got there, found out that that was a course that was required for everybody who graduates from that institution, a course on personal evangelism. And the idea is that uh, the president doesn't want, any, doesn't want to give anybody a diploma or any sort of accomplishment from that institute if they've never shared their faith with somebody else or if they don't know how to do that. So it's a required course. Now, when the professor first came in, he asked a question. The first question he asked was, um, just go around and tell us how long, how far along you are in your department until you, you finish. And at least three-fourths of the class were on their way out, like within the next semester, they were done. Okay? And he asked that question for a reason. His point was, even though you're here in seminary, this class that's required, you put off till the very end because it forces you to do evangelism. Now, these are seminary students who want to be pastors and go into ministry full time. And even for them, the idea of sharing their faith, the idea of doing evangelism Telling other people the good news of Jesus is a terrifying thing, can be a terrifying thing. So quickly, I just want to point out four observations about this idea of evangelism, which even that word has some negative connotations and thoughts. Just the simple, the way we should live our lives now, there's a lot of ways I could land this thing. I talk about how you love your family, how you act as a neighbor, how you serve and love one another. But the way I really want to focus and land it is how we tell others about Jesus, okay? So the, just four quick observations about evangelism. The first thing we see is in the text, um, it shows us, talks about specifically kind of what the, um, 
Actually, time out. The first thing I want to talk about is the greatest obstacle that we have in evangelism. The greatest barrier that keeps us from sharing our faith with those around us. And that is fear. Fear of rejection, fear of bad looks, fear of damaged relationships or a bad reputation. Um, we see, uh, look at what we see in verses 11. Just verse 11. It says, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, of faith by his power. Every evangelistic step that we take is one of faith. It has to be. Why would the Thessalonians risk everything to share their faith with those around them? By faith, they are prompted by the Spirit. It's Christ's power that evangelism happens. It's by His power. This power gives us hope that not all depends on our pathetic efforts, our fumblings of the gospel truths. He takes the most humble and inadequate efforts of the Christian, and through Christ, it becomes the power that changes lives and that moves people from one side of God's judgment to the other. Second Timothy, we learn that for God has given us a spirit not of fear, but one of power and of love and of self-control. Goes on to say that the man of God will be complete, equipped for every good work. God has called us to share his news. The very reason why the Thessalonians know Jesus, if you were to go to Thessalonians chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the very reason why they know Jesus is because Paul went to them and told them about Jesus. In chapter 1, it goes on to talk about what their witness looks like to the world around them. They have the power. Remember the power of Jesus coming with thousands and thousands of angels? That power he gives to you. So the idea of we are afraid, but I'm afraid. I don't want to damage this relationship. He's given you everything you need to accomplish his purpose here on earth. That should free us up. That should free us up to readily do it. Another quick observation about evangelism is that evangelism is for everyone. I think it can sometimes be thought that evangelism is a spiritual gift. Telling others about Jesus is a gift that just some people in the church have. The Bible doesn't talk about it as a spiritual gift. Okay, evangelism is for everybody. It's for everybody. Absolutely everybody. For Jesus himself says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And if we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we enter into that work. Seeking and saving the lost. Another observation is that our greatest motivation for evangelism isn't the whip of a master or a guilty conscience. Rather, my motivation comes from the reality of God's work in my own life. My understanding of eternal judgment, what that looks like, and my love for those around us. So often, the biggest problem could just be apathy. We don't care. We need to have the heart of Jesus that when we see lost people, our heart breaks for them. That it breaks for them. Another thing, just a quick observation, is that evangelism by definition is verbal. And this sometimes can be, it seems obvious, but for me, this can be my biggest maybe hang up is that I can see folks and I can desire to get to know them for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. But so often I can just hang out in that relationship zone where I'm trying to build a bridge, where I'm trying to gain trust and credibility, that it can be hard for me to actually articulate the gospel to them. But evangelism can't be done. You can't love somebody into the kingdom. You can't do that. You have to speak 
God's word. If any of us were here, we might have, there might be ways that love has, from Christians around us have impacted us, but at some point we have to know truth. We have to know truth. It is verbal. It's verbal. And so often I can, you know, just even a great question is, well, how do you get to that point? What are ways that you can do as, as believers in relationships with people who don't know Jesus? What are things we can do to, to move the conversation along, to bring up the truth? And I'll just give you one quick one that's, that I use often is, how can I pray for you? I, I'll even do it to strangers. Just a number of months ago, I was walking down the sidewalk. I was on like a prayer walk at the spot, and there was a, an elderly gentleman that was walking past me. And as I was walking, I was praying. So I just stopped and asked him, hey, is there anything I can do to pray for you right now? I'm, I'm praying. At first, he looked at me like, what are you talking about? And then after a few minutes, it was like he just unloaded, just unloaded his life story with me. It was phenomenal. It was awesome. That is a fantastic bridge to get to the gospel. It's just, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? At the restaurant... The waiter comes, brings the bill, ask her a question. Hey, is there any way we're going to pray? Uh, maybe before the bill comes. Well, you know, I think that's how it usually works. <laughs> it's been a while since I've been out. Okay, sorry. Um, but, you know, ask them that question. Hey, is there a way that we're going to pray before the meal comes? Is there a way we can pray for you? That's a fantastic way for, you know, even moms and dads here, for your kids to see you do that. All right? Um, it is a responsibility that we all, we all share. We all share it. Um, so just in closing, I would ask, just there's two things I want to leave that are just real practical application, okay? Um, I want each person, I want each person here um, to just think of one person that you will encounter this week. It could be somebody you work with, it could be a neighbor, it could be a family member, it could be somebody you have a friendship with that you've established a really good relationship with, somebody that you will contact, come in contact with at some point this week. A lot of us are here with other people. A lot of us are a part of community groups. It would be great in some sort of form of community to share who is that one person that you want to share your faith with this week. A lot of us is going to take a lot of prayer. Okay, so the next application would be pray for that person. Pray for you. Pray for strength. That you would overcome whatever obstacle, whatever barrier, because their eternal destiny hinges on how they respond to Jesus. There's no greater truth you can extend to them. No greater message you can give to them. Are we more afraid of our reputation than we are of their eternal destruction? So who is it going to be? I would invite you to just share that with whoever you're here with today or wherever you go from here with somebody. Community group would be a great place. And then spend time praying for, for those people. Those are the two walkaways I want us to take with us today. Prayer is the lifeblood of evangelism. Uh, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for just this reminder. Um, Lord, thank you for just its timeliness, even in my life. And um, Lord, I pray that just even as we prepare to leave here, Father, that, uh, that you would show us just real clearly in each of our lives, we have different things that we're dealing with, different struggles, different paces. Lord, our hope is that you would show each of us how we can be faithful to you and faithful to the people that you've called us to, the people you've put in our path. The best way we can do that is to point them to you. So I pray you would give us strength. I pray you give us clarity. Just even show us who you have in our lives right now that we can share you with. Lord, equip your saints as they leave now. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.